So I'm sorry I don't have a handout for you. I uh, allowed myself to be engaged too long at something else. Um, we are continuing in the book of Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 3. And chapter, Proverbs chapter 3 and 4 fit together. You'll, you'll notice on the outline that I've given to you in the past that uh, there is, in the chiasm, chapters 3 and 4 I put together uh, as part D of the chiasm. And so there the Father commands that teaching be heeded. So as we continue and look at Proverbs 3, uh, I'm going to read it in pieces, and I'm not sure how far we'll get uh, today. So what we're going to do is I'm going to look at the first 12 verses, and we'll see where we are at that time. So Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and the heading I would kind of give this section is, it's the discipline of the Father and the duty of the Son. But the discipline of the Father is intentionally ambiguous in terms of how I would title this, because it's the Father, but it's also God the Father. And it talks about the discipline of God the Father as well as human fathers. So let's consider that. So Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. And you have direct there or make straight. So, and He shall make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be healthy to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chasing of the Lord nor detest His correction. For whom the Lord loves, He corrects, just as a father, the son in whom He delights. Chapter 3, verse 1. The call here is to not forget the law, but to let your heart keep my commandments. Now, that uh, word for keep can also be translated as guard. And we think about this, there's this idea of not forgetting the law and guarding or keeping the commands. Now, the forgetting is something that we are prone to do. We have law teaching, and unless we meditate regularly on the law, our tendency is to think of other things. Our tendency is to be drawn away, to follow the examples of others. There's a way in which people present a law to us continually. Art displays for us perceptions of what the good life is. The way people speak, the way people act, what they commend, what they disapprove of, the countenancing of things. People become trained to cultures very fast. What is approved of in a culture is easy to pick up on. And what you find is that there's a tendency for people to behave unwritten rules and unspoken rules. 
pretty quickly. It is important that in homes and in a church and in Christian businesses that a culture be built up where the law is put continuously before people. And we want to have, we of course have daily morning and evening worship and you have the Sabbath for these purposes. But the idea that throughout the day there is a danger of forgetting. And this danger of forgetting has a few different ways in which it can occur. If we're trying to guard the commandments in our hearts, if we're trying to keep them in our hearts, then there are going to be things that we have to do in terms of the way we approach that. If we just go over all the commandments of God in order, one after the other, in repetition, we will find that we remember them far less quickly than if we organize them in our minds. And so the Lord has been kind to us in providing us with an organization for us. This the way of not forgetting, having simple organizing principles is extremely important. And so one of the reasons that the evangelical church has been so broadly ineffective is because by destroying the usage of the Ten Commandments, there is not a way to easily organize the commandments of God in the minds of men. And this elimination of an effective organizing tool is largely because of the desire to avoid the Sabbath. The Ten Commandments are inconvenient if you really want to make them the nine. Because the fourth commandment is not at the start and it's not at the end, so you have to knock something out right in the middle, which is just inconvenient. So the Ten Commandments, which are the organizing principle of law, are the most helpful way of helping us to avoid forgetting the law. Now you have the two great commandments, right? Love God, love neighbor. And then we have the commandments broken into the first table and the second table under that. Right? So the first four commandments teach us how to love God, and the last six teach us how to love our neighbor. And so this organizing principle allows us to consider all other commandments in relationship to that. Now, in the organization of thoughts and being able to recall things, one of the things that's extremely useful is being able to have kind of a, a hook where you can hang things, right? An organizing thing, a bucket you can put things into. So having the two great commandments and having the Ten Commandments allows us when we see other commandments to be able to organize them. And so the law of God, when you read it without that organizing principle, is a jumbled mess. But when you have that organizing principle, all of a sudden you see a case law about the fact that, you know, if a man leaves a hole and somebody falls into it and is injured, the person who left it is responsible for murder. They're responsible for harm to that person's body. They're responsible for property damage. They're, whatever happens there. And it relates back to the Sixth Commandment and this idea of the concern for people's well-being. And so you can think about that as an application. It gives you a sense of, I need to not leave dangers for people physically. Um, you can think about the laws that relate to property. And you go, okay, this relates to the Eighth Commandment and the commandment to not steal. And so all of a sudden, these become explanations and so these major hooks or buckets or nails are important. And so picking places to meditate, another thing, even if you're just studying the Ten Commandments, you, know, you want to get an initial understanding and a summary, then figure out what's the one that's the problem in your life right now. And start meditating on that one and applications of that one. And thinking about things to put off and things to put on. And you start to find you've got a place in the law 
where you know lots of ways in which it connects to other parts of Scripture. So the ways to avoid forgetting law is to look for organizing principles and then have a place of expertise. And that place of expertise should be the place where you are weak to begin with because that will help you to overcome that weakness. So in order to not forget the law, we need to organize and then we need to meditate over and over again on a place until it becomes a strength. And so it becomes a fortified position in your mind that allows you to guard and keep your heart, keep the commands in your heart. Now, the other thing is, there are sound patterns of words. And the book of Ecclesiastes talks about this idea that wise men work on sound patterns of words. The book of Proverbs gives us those. But also, the church is obligated to organize and systematize what the scriptures teach. And so we have the Westminster Standards. The Ten Commandments, as explained in the Shorter Catechism, are excellent. And as they're explained in the Larger Catechism, give far more detail and are excellent. And so if you study those, you go, I need to study this particular law. Okay, well, there is work of our forebearers in the faith that has gone before us. And so you can look at what is said there, consider their sound pattern of words, and consider the scripture texts that they have already drawn together for us so that you can see how different texts relate. And so in order to avoid forgetting the law, we need organizing principles. We need to meditate on an area where we need to grow. And we need to look at the words of the wise and how they have organized and drawn things together for us. If you don't have any systematic theologies, you will find it harder, you will find it far harder to learn about what the Bible says than if you have them. And, you know, the Westminster Confession is essentially a short systematic theology. And it lays out for us the system of doctrine. And so if you read something like the Institutes, or if you read Robert Raymond's single volume on theology, or if you were to look at many other excellent one's Turretin's three-volume set, Hodges' three-volume set, you'll find there's much overlap, but there will be some disagreement. And you will begin to become aware of controversies on issues and be forced to study them. And so the subject matter draws together the pertinent verses. The discussion about them helps to sharpen you, and you benefit from the history. The history of the church does not teach us in the sense of revealing new doctrine. The history of the church is the history of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, arguing about the words of the Holy Spirit in such a way as to draw out the pertinent places. They pick the salient points. They find the common locations that need to be addressed. And so the arguments that are drawn from them get gathered, and councils assemble those things and organize words to make it so that we can more easily fight on the next battle. You know, if you, if you think, imagine going into battle and you don't have any magazines filled with ammunition. They're all empty. You have loose ammunition. You've got magazines. You think in the moment of battle, what I'm going to do, if somebody starts to fight me, I'm going to start putting ammunition in the magazines. And then when I've loaded the magazine, I'm going to slap that thing in my AR. And then I'm going to pull back, put it to my shoulder, fire. Right? You go, well, that was, that was terrible. Why didn't I just have the magazine loaded? If you study systematic theologies, other people have already loaded the magazines for you. They've put the stuff together. They've got the verses there. It helps you to have it organized. And you're able to go in and do battle far more effectively. So there is a great value to the work in the history of the church, and the work as it's governed providentially by God and as the sanctification of individuals blesses each other so there's a compound effect, so they work together corporately, there is an assembling of things. Just as 
David helped to gather materials for Solomon. Our forebearers in the faith gather things to help it so the construction of the church, the temple of God, continues on. And so we look at what has happened in the past, and we look at the study that has come before us, and we are greatly benefited and can go far further in than if we did not work using the work that has come before us. So my son, do not forget my command, but let your heart keep my commands. Do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Think about this commandment, and if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, you will find this blessing to line up. The Fifth Commandment says to honor father and mother, and it promises that you will live long in the land that the Lord your God gives to you if you do so. And here there is this idea of a father giving to a son a law and commandments to put into his heart, to be guarded. And he says that this will result in length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Now, this is the same blessing, but it's put in different words. And let's think about this for a second. Peace relates to long life. If you have peace as opposed to strife, it encourages long life. Not only because of the problems of, of violence, right, which come out of strife, but also because we all know that stress is destructive to health. When you have strife, there is a destruction there. Also, you tend to be less prosperous when you have strife as opposed to peace. And so the commandment, the fifth commandment, gives us a social order principle that allows us to live together in a harmonious and useful way where we understand the place that we are to occupy and we are able to work together to bless each other, to avoid strife, to avoid usurpation. And so it tends towards length of days and long life. Now, one of the things that's odd about this verse is the idea of the length of days and long life being put next to each other. And my understanding is it's not only repetition, though it is, it's intentional repetition for emphasis, but there's also this reality that you can accomplish more with more time. And a part of this is the idea that you will be more fruitful. Right? Peace is more than just avoiding strife. Peace has to do with prosperity. So the length of days and living long and having peace has to do with an increase of productivity. When you understand how to work with other people, when you understand the order of things, when you acknowledge rank, when you acknowledge station, when you work to do your duties according to your place, the result is increased productivity through the division of labor, which is one of the principles that the scriptures reveal and that everybody who's thought about economics for five minutes has heard of. And so what happens is we think about the fact that the ants, right, the ants are to be looked at, we see later in Proverbs, because of the fact that even without officers, they work together. The division of labor, the spreading out of work, the, the giving of work across uh, different people makes it so that far more is able to be done. But human beings require officers in order to work well together so that even in the smallest human society, the household, there is station and rank. The father is the head of the house, the wife as his queen, and then the children might have deputed authority for different things or maybe servants but the the idea that there is an order to things and it results in greater productivity now continuing on to verses 3 and 4 let not mercy and truth forsake you bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart and so find favor and high esteem 
in the sight of God and man. We, we see here, again, a repetition on the idea of the heart, the inner man. So the tablet of the heart, if we're to, to take the commandments of our Father and to keep them in our hearts, to guard them in our hearts, over here there's this idea of, of writing them on a tablet of the heart. And this, you know, the, the tablet of the heart should kind of remind of the idea of the tablets upon which the Ten Commandments are written. And so we consider this idea of, of the law being written on the heart, but we also think about the, the reality of something being there in a long-lasting way. Um, in a way that's not eradicated. And so this, however, is not, it doesn't say the law. What does it say? Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. We are told before to have the law in our hearts. But here the idea of truth and we've been talking about wisdom, understanding, knowledge, truth. And truth certainly has applications as it relates to the law. But the value of getting truth, not forsaking truth, not neglecting it, not avoiding it, not resisting, not denying, but seeking it. How do you get truth to not forsake you? Right? Think about truth, personify it for a minute. Right? Truth forsaking you. Well, if you don't think on the truth regularly, if you don't study the truth, if you don't meditate on the truth, if you don't store it up in your heart, so you need to organize the law, but you also need to organize doctrine more broadly. All the things I just told you about the law, organization, meditating on specific places where there's weakness, Thinking about what has come before, the men who have come before us and have organized things to systematize what the scriptures teach and pull together connected verses. How well can you explain the answer to the question we talked about in Romans today? How is it just that God predestines all things and yet holds us accountable? And if you don't have a really clear, good way of explaining that, figure it out. Doctrine of the Trinity, how well can you explain that? What verses do you know to prove it? The doctrine of the Incarnation. What verses do you know to prove it? Can you explain it well? Right? So these are places where you look for places where you have difficulty and you seek to study them, to meditate on them, to store them up in your heart, to organize them, and to look at how people have talked about it before and to see the common places of the texts of Scripture that you should have in your mind. And again, the Confession does an excellent job on this. But mercy, don't let mercy forsake you. If truth, we study the Bible, study systematic theology, the law, we can study that, study the the commands, look for ways that they relate to each other. What about mercy? I would suggest to you that the principal way to grow in mercy is the studying of the law to see your own guilt rightly and the studying of the gospel to see how much you have been forgiven, how much, how fully you've been forgiven. So the law shows you how much you've been forgiven. The gospel shows you how fully you have been forgiven. And so if you understand your forgiveness that you have received, it will help you to be a merciful person. And when you see all of your own defects, 
when you stare plainly into the mirror of the law of God and can see your own blemishes, you find that you can be more kind to other people's blemishes. I am not advocating here that we should not care about helping each other to be held accountable. What I am trying to say is that we should seek to help people to be accountable in the places where they need to grow because if we try to find everything and correct it all at once, the result is discouragement. So what we do is we figure out how can I help this person? What are they, what are they trying to grow in? What do they need to grow in? And so mercy looks like overlooking and charitably interpreting everything except for those things you have a duty to correct or the place where they're trying to grow. So mercy and truth, don't let them forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Now the binding around the neck points to this next line, the write them on a tablet of your heart. So the idea that you're binding it around your neck and you have a tablet over your heart. Now think about, are there any other texts in the Bible that talk about writing on anything and then putting it on something? Like maybe Deuteronomy 6. Right, it talks about Right, having the word and putting it on the forehead, and it talks about writing the word and putting it on the arm, and it talks about writing the word on the doorpost and on the gate. What does that mean? It means governing that thing, right? Governing your thoughts, governing your your actions, governing your house, governing the gates with the word. So the heart here. This is another way of talking about putting the word, just in the same way of putting it on your forehead. It's the inner man. It's referring to the inner man. The heart, the mind, the soul. The writing of the word on the inner man. And the result is that you find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Now, when you look at this, the immediate thing is to go to the idea of finding favor and high esteem in the sight of God by doing law keeping. Well, yeah, that's what the covenant of works says. That's what the covenant of works says. So, this is a law text. Now, in the covenant of grace, we can think about, does that surprise you that Proverbs is a law text, by the way? It's telling you what you should do. Okay? So, it's teaching, this is, a, this is a covenant of works promise here. You get the favor of God by being obedient to the law. However, there's also a way in which, in the covenant of grace, we know that there are blessings in this life for doing what God commands not as though merited in ourselves. But that is the tendency. And when we deal with our neighbor, if we take the commandments of God, take the truth, have mercy, that gives favor and high esteem in the sight of men. Does it happen every time? Have you ever treated anybody right and then they treat you badly in response? They slander you or anything like that? That happens. But this is the general tendency. This is how things tend to go. And remember, book of Proverbs, a bunch of statements about how things tend to go. And this is revealing to us the structure of reality. So, the law of God helps us to have length of days, long life, and peace. It helps us to have prosperity. And the law of God helps us in the doctrine of God and, and mercy, which is part of the thing we're commanded to be. We're commanded to forgive each other, right? It's a, a merciful obligation. Those things 
Help us to have good reputation. Proverbs will teach us that reputation is worth more than gold. So we will have a tendency towards good reputation, peace, length of days, as we apply these things. Now, a lot of the time, this does not sound particularly exciting to people, which unveils a level of foolishness. If long life, peace, and good reputation do not sound exciting as rewards, what does that person think about those things? They're not valuable. Now, the average young person today probably is not particularly excited about the promises of long life, peace, and good reputation. Youth culture does not esteem these things. which should unveil the obvious stupidity of youth culture. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Now, that directing of the path, I think what's more being said is what you probably have as a footnote in terms of the idea of making straight the path, making, making straightening up the path. Right? If you acknowledge God in all of your ways, He will straighten up the path. He'll make it so it's easier to go down. He will cause success. Why will He do that? For the fame of His own great name. Right? He does it for His glory. When you acknowledge God and it draws people out to attack you, all of a sudden, if they attack you, go after you, undermine you because of the fact that you have the name of Christ over your head? Has anybody here read Hezekiah's prayer when Sennacherib had an army of over 100,000 men surrounding Jerusalem? And they mocked Yahweh and they said, who's this God? He's not going to do anything for you. He's not going to help you or whatever. So Hezekiah takes this letter and he prays before God that God would save them. And to do it for God's glory. And God kills those soldiers overnight. God does remarkable things when people attack His name for His people or in hatred of his, towards His people. And so, what you want to do is you want to make it so like Daniel, you've got nothing anybody can catch you in except for stuff that relates to the law. So that they will try to snare you with the law. So they will try to attack your God. So they will mock you for your God. And what will happen, <laughs> what tends to happen, is you just kind of bumble through and God's just blessing you. Right? Luther and Melanchthon, were, the Reformation's going full bore. Luther talks about this idea that, you know, like he didn't cause the Reformation. He, he says... Luther and Melanchthon drink beer in the garden and the word of God goes forth. He didn't, he, he didn't engineer the thing. He didn't think this is a really well-placed nail. Just right there. That'll do it. That'll bring down the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor and all the legions of hell. We do what God commands. 
We leave the results to Him. And generally what He does is He blesses it. Now, I have read the book of Job. I know you have read the book of Job. Did I say every single time it always is prospered? No. Is this the general tendency? Yes. So, you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall make straight your paths. Remember John the Baptist came to make straight the way of the Lord. Right? He's, he's coming before the King, before the Lord Jesus Christ came. And his goal was to straighten things up, get the riffraff out of the streets, make it easier for him to come along as the King in his procession. So he's telling people, time to repent, get baptized, stop being so awful, repent, believe, come on. And then Jesus comes after that. That work of John the Baptist was to prepare the way for Jesus. What does it mean to prepare the way? If you go in front of a king and you prepare the way, you're cleaning the streets up. You're trying to make it so that they can go down the street with less distraction. The Lord will do that for you if you acknowledge Him in all of your ways. He will make straight your paths. Now, how do we do that? How do we acknowledge Him in all we do? Because if we just acknowledge Him all the time and we don't know what we're saying, we're going to be like you know, Peter when, when Elijah and Moses come to Jesus and, and, and Peter walks up and says, oh, I'm going to make a house for all of you. Or, and then we, he acknowledges that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right? If you just try to look for something holy to do all the time, you'll just come up with superstitious things to do. So how do you avoid just coming up with superstitious things to do? Well, the verse before explains that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, which is not, uh, by the way, an admonition to make sure to have the right level of emotion all the time. It's not saying, you know, make sure that you have like this frothy zeal at every given second. That's not the point of trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does it mean? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Well, I would posit to you that after the comma, it helps to explain so we understand what we're talking about. Leaning not on your own understanding is don't lean on stuff you make up. Don't, don't try to figure it out apart from divine revelation. Instead, we should trust God with all of our heart. All of our thoughts should be taken captive to the Word of God. All of our thoughts should be captive to Christ. So this means the content that we think about should always be thinking about it in light of what Scripture says. Until all of your experience, every moment of your day, every activity that you do has a principle of Scripture that's associated with it, you have not reached a point where you're just interpreting everything in a Christian way. What does the law do? It gives us a grid to interpret how we interact with the world. And so, we study the law. I think I remember being advised to do that somewhere earlier in this book we study the law so that we know what we ought to do and we act trusting God and then we trust that when we do that and we acknowledge that we're doing it for the glory of God that he will straighten our paths 
that he will make things level, that he'll smooth it out for us. Maybe it's just me. I find that I am tempted, on occasion, to try to make everything work. Just occasionally, I think if I just do it, if I try hard enough, if I just think about it long enough, and just give it the Harvard try, I can make it work. And generally speaking, Harvard is overrated. That try does not accomplish what I'm hoping for. And other times, I'm just going about my business, trying to do what God tells me to do, and blessings just start popping out. Now, this sounds roughly like probably half of the charismatic sermons you've ever heard. Driving down the street, and there that parking spot just opened up. Yeah, God gave you that parking spot. Just because a charismatic said it doesn't mean it's wrong. He did. He controls the parking spots that open up. And if you don't thank God when a parking spot opens up for you right when you're driving by, God have mercy. Right? You should give thanks for that. It's a blessing from God. Is this a mechanistic thing where it always happens? Do we always get blessing by applying the law of God? Well, yeah, we always get blessing, but is it always external? No. Sometimes we suffer for righteousness' sake. But what is the general tendency of things? I'm not making this up. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. He will make straight your paths. That is the line of argument. And... We are so concerned for the exceptions that we don't let ourselves enjoy the general rule. This is the general rule. And we should glory in it. Verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. If you're wise in your own eyes, you're looking at your own thoughts and you think of yourself as wise, that's going to cause you, rather than looking to God for wisdom, you're looking to yourself. Well, we just heard that we shouldn't lean on our own understanding. We should trust the Lord. What does he teach? And so, the fear of the Lord, we should fear the Lord and we should depart from evil. Fearing the Lord looks like in a law context, saying, if I don't obey, I'm going to be punished. In the covenant of grace context, it looks like verse 12. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. We should fear the chastisement of the Lord. We should fear being handed over to our sin. We should fear the discipline of God. If you discipline yourself, He doesn't have to discipline you. The fear of the Lord looks like fear in the law context in terms of the covenant of works, fearing damnation, but also in the covenant of grace, even being saved, it looks like being concerned about the discipline of God. So we should depart from evil out of fear that we might be given over to it, or out of fear that we might be chastised. 
And when we're freed from that, the level of anxiety when you are not in continuous unrepentance sin, the level of anxiety that you are freed from, just on an existential level, it is so enjoyable to not have the anxiety of feeling like you are in constant rebellion. You will sin. But if you have a sin that you're given over to, if you have a sin that you're not acknowledging and repenting of, not breaking off, the level of anxiety that you deal with and the stress from it is something that you've probably forgotten what it would be like to not have it. And if you cut off the means of the flesh, if you cut off that sin, then you will find that it is health to your flesh. Now, it's interesting. The word there is literally the navel. And if we feel stress in our gut, you know, there's this presence there, this kind of sense that it would be health to your flesh. That's legitimate. That's what it's saying. But the idea of the navel is a cynic docky, right, where the part represents the whole. That it will be health to your body at the leaving of stress there from the anxiety about the evil that you do. And then it's strength to your bones. And literally the word strength there is drink. It's drink to your bones. Okay, so this idea that it will nourish your bones. The book of Proverbs uses bones a lot of the time to think about places where where there's deep, deep pain. The breaking of bones is horrifically painful. The rotting of the bones and talks about you know, living with a contentious wife. You know, there's, there's these things there where you go, you know, ouch, right? The, these, these images of bones. And so here, this idea of the other way that if you depart from sin, rather than feeling like your, your bones are being rotted out, this idea that there's a nourishment to the bones, that the inner man is stronger. And you think about where you see this kind of language elsewhere in the prophets and, and how you see this idea of the inner man being renewed day by day. The strengthening of the inner man. And so these are, these are things that tend towards literal health, but also they tend towards simply an enjoyment of life. They, they tend towards making life sweeter and less bitter. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So we, we just, we have in the beginning here, we have the idea of the law of God, we have truth and mercy, and then we have this idea of you know, trust in the Lord, don't be wise in your own eyes. And here we get down to 9, and there's this idea of honoring God with your possessions. Do you know how to honor God with your property? You want to have purpose behind all of your property. Because you can't glorify God without intentionality. And so what you do is you think about what is the purpose of this property? Well, you should be you should be earning property. You should be working hard to make property. It's a distinctive marker of biblical religion and Protestantism is known for the Protestant work ethic. 
right? especially Calvinism, especially Puritanism, the Puritan work ethic. So time should be spent to create property, and property should be used to honor the Lord. The accumulation of capital is not just about having something to consume or having something to give. The accumulation of capital is often to make it so that you have more capital. What? It's said of the man who hoards his grain, he's cursed, but the man who sells it, not gives it away, sells it, there's a blessing on it. That is about the idea that hoarding is bad, but investment is good. Investment is taking money and putting it to productive use. Taking money and putting it to productive use. As possessions increase, so do they who consume them. Well, you might say, well, that sounds fruitless. I mean, then why get more possessions? If I just, more people, more problems, more money, more people, more money, more problems. It seems like the rapper had it right, right? When you have more people who are dependent upon consumption through productivity that is under your jurisdiction, that is called dominion. And as you have dominion, you have more gates, more house that you can put the law on. You have more servants that you can help to make sure they can keep the Sabbath. Other people do what they will. Me and my house, we will rest. And so you put markers. You're able to put the law on things. So dollars, they should be consumed. Dollars should be given away. Called to give a tithe. And dollars should be invested. People talk about savings. Not savings. Investing. Putting money into making more money. Which requires you to take risk. It requires you to make decisions. And you will make some wrong decisions. So you look for what the Bible has to say about investment. And one of the texts that sometimes gets thrown around is in Ecclesiastes, where Solomon talks about the idea of the trade of grain, it seems like. The idea of casting bread upon many waters, the idea of having six or seven ships, not putting everything onto one, is the way it's talked about, the idea of diversification there. But at the same time, it's also not infinite diversification. Everybody today talks about you buy, you buy an index fund of, of, of everything in the market. Indiscriminate purchasing. There are principles to prudently select investments. Putting everything into one thing is normally not wise. There are times when it's wise. But picking a few prudent things. Seeking to wisely distribute your resources. Honor the Lord with your possessions. So you give to the poor. You tithe. You bless. You give everything in the name of Christ. You never give anything except in the name of Christ. You never give anything without putting the name of Christ on it. Even a cool cup of water. If that, if you, the Lord Jesus Christ forbids you to take this and give it to somebody without giving it to them in the name of Christ. 
honor the Lord with your possessions. And you don't just do it with the last stuff. You do it with the first fruits of all your increase. The first fruits. I've had conversations with many of you about this in the past. They do it. What is tithing on? Is tithing on you know, pre-tax, post-tax? I don't know. Which comes first? God or Caesar? Right? First fruits. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. The way this is normally presented is, honor the Lord, which means give everything away, give a lot of stuff away, just be really generous, and then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine, because God just drops money out of the sky. Sure, God can do that. Absolutely. But what this is really saying is, tithe, and invest, and limit your consumption, and help the poor. And the Lord will bless you providentially, and those behaviors tend towards prosperity. The law of God is not magic. It is the case that God organizes things that we do not see providentially. His secret counsel is for us. But He also organizes things to tend in a certain way, in a way that makes sense. The law of God reveals for us the structure of reality. The law of God teaches us not only about ethics, but about metaphysics. It teaches us about the structure of reality, how things work. You think you know how things work? You think you're pragmatic? If your pragmatism is not doing what God commands, you are not very pragmatic. The best policy is the policy that God commands. It works. Nothing else does. Things appear to work until they don't. But think about this promise, verse 10. Right? Does this sound like prosperity gospel? Your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. That's the general tendency. That's the promise. Is it a promise that every single time? No. But are you exhausted yet of me saying that? At some point, I'm not going to say it. And then someone will go, you know, well, wait, you'll think in your head, is this, is this always? The answer is no. <laughs> it's the general tendency. This is the structure of reality, and this is how God has organized things. Verse 11, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. When we suffer, under the hand of God when he chastens us he loves more purely and more wisely than any human father the suffering you undergo in response to your failures God uses it for the good of your soul The stripes he gives help to knock away the fog of foolishness. And they bring a sharpness to thought. So that where there was darkness, there was clarity and brightness as the sun. He uses suffering to make truth 
abundantly clear on the subjective level. We often neglect, avoid, resist, and deny the teaching that God gives us until we are in misery. And in the misery of our sin, God brings truth to mind. We repent. And the shocking way that He often cleans things up when we start to apply the law if you've been a Christian for long, you can look at, you can look back, and you can see, you can remember those things. But it's funny each time we're tempted to think, "Oh, not this time! I can't, <laughs> I can't repent and apply what the Lord is teaching this time. This time's, this time's too hard." And surely the Lord won't just fix all of this. There's too many, there's too many problems. There's too many things to fix. It, it can't all be cleaned up. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He shall direct. He shall make straight your paths. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members? All right.